title of this morning's message, as you see from your bulletin, is The Hour Has Come. We have been studying together, and with his hour, first of all, does refer to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and eventually leading to his glorification, and meaning that he would be honored and he would be exalted. And if you look at verses 27 and 28 of our current text, which actually pick it up next time there, you see that it does refer to that again. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It is the hour referred to again. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Lord Jesus Christ was referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. And that glorification is also referred to in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, before the text that I read to you this morning. There we read these words. Behold, my servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And it talks about his suffering afterwards. So it is referring to the purpose for which the Messiah was coming. As we've been talking about this hour, however, so far in John's Gospel, turn with me to chapter 2 of John, we have seen this hour as being something that is future, something that was not imminent at the time, as we have been following the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, let me just give you a couple of verses here. In chapter 2, verse 4, we see that. Chapter 2, verse 4 of John says this, And Jesus said to her, Woman, remember this? where the water was changed to wine, as you're talking to his mother, he said uh, in verse 4, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Go with me to chapter 7 of John's account in verse 30. Verses we've already studied. John chapter 7, verse 30. And in verse 30, you see it again. So they were seeking to seize him. Remember that? That's been continuous throughout this account. And no man laid his hand on him. Why? Reason. Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. In chapter 8 and verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to go after him. Again, why? Reason. Because his hour had not yet come. And so we've been continuously seeing reference to the hour the Lord Jesus Christ always would please the Father. And his hour, that referring to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and as I said, also his glorification, as we see in the text. That had not yet come and was seen as future. What we have been witnessing in the meantime is Jesus teaching and demonstrating primarily to his disciples, but also to the nation of Israel, that he is the Messiah. He's been teaching them this, and he's been showing the evidence through the miracles that have been performed. And yet saying every time they would seize, wanted to seize him, that his hour for that had not yet come. He was in the process of teaching and ministering so that people would come to understand that Jesus Christ is the one true and only Messiah. And in fact, we've seen in this particular account that John has said that's the whole purpose in his writing. We started in our study in the book. You've heard it over again, and you'll continue to hear it over and over again. Everything that John is presenting is so that people might understand that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, 
that he's the Son of God. Why do they need to understand that? So that believing they might have life through his name. And that's the whole purpose. And that ministry has been going on and on. Recently, as we have been in chapter 12, we have seen that Jesus has formally presented himself, that is, in an official capacity, uh, in what we know as Palm Sunday, uh, and presented himself to Israel as the Messiah. And while the people were involved in a lot of commotion and a lot of celebration and a lot of screaming out in accordance with the Scriptures, of even saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord, they were looking for a military leader. You saw that again in the responsive reading that I brought to your attention this morning in Luke 24. They didn't get it. They cried out as if he was the Messiah, but they were looking specifically for physical deliverance from the nation of Rome. And they were looking for that type of victory and that type of redeemer. While they were hoping, remember on the Emmaus Road, that this was the redeemer of Israel, their concept of redemption was not on a spiritual basis, it was on a physical basis. They did not see him as the spiritual redeemer that they needed to see. Yet, even though that were to happen in our text recently, we saw that because of the miracles that he had done, particularly in the raising of Lazarus from the death, many were looking for him. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 12, it says, For this reason also the people went and met him. Why? Because they heard that he had performed this sign, and it's referring to the resurrection of Lazarus. So many people were coming to Jesus, and many had come up because of the Feast of the Passover. And the result was that the religious leaders who wanted Jesus killed, who basically said everybody should turn him in when they see him, they were being frustrated to no end because rather than because of their threats, his popularity to go down, his pop popularity was increasing. And they were frustrated. And you began to see that in verse 19 as we closed out last week. So the Pharisees said one to another, You see, you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So even though they had been threatening what was going on, rather than his pop popularity decreasing, it was growing significantly. And people wanted to see him. And there were throngs of people coming up. In fact, uh, some of the statistics, and I think I gave them to you a couple of weeks ago, was there was millions of people that would have been in Jerusalem at the time. So there's a lot going on. And as we left off last week and pick it up again in verses 21 and verse 20, we see that there are also Greeks that come to him looking for him in verse 20. There were Greeks among them. These are probably, as I said last week in closing, proselytes. We don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us everything. But being up there and worshiping, they're probably restricted to the court of the Gentiles, and they couldn't get in to see Jesus. And so they, they really want an audience. They really want to see him. They had come to worship at the feast, which again to me would indicate probably proselytes. And in verse 21, so what happens is they come to Philip, and we, that was the last thing we mentioned last week, is they come to him in verse 21, probably because he was in that area, and they being Greeks were familiar and thought they could get through to Jesus through Philip. That's possible. And so they come to him, and as the process goes on in verses 20 and 21, you can scan it very quickly. They are looking to get to Jesus, and Philip and Andrew finally talk, and they come to Jesus and say that the Greeks are here, basically, and they want an audience with him. And that's what's happened through verse 22. 
Now the response to this is found in verse 23. And that's where we actually pick it up this morning. And you notice there's no mention of the Greeks right away. He doesn't really talk about them directly. In fact, he does, there's no really mention of them anymore. Jesus goes on and he's continuing to instruct and to indicate to his disciples what's going on. And what's his answer? As they come and say the Greeks basically want to meet with you as well. And the answer in verse 23 is, the hour has come. That's where we got the title from. The hour has come. Why? For what purpose has this hour come? For the Son of Man to be glorified. His hour, and this is the first time that it's mentioned, his now, it's at hand. His hour has come. What hour? We've already talked about it. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his glorification. It's now imminent. We use that term in relationship to the rapture. But we see here that it's imminent. It's at hand. If we compare it to chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, which we already did, you see that it's, it's pretty close. Go with me to chapter 13 of John for a second. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we're going to see that again in John later on. The point is now we see that rather than putting it off as something way in the future, we now see that it's at hand. And it's interesting, as I pointed out, because we're only midway through the book, and yet the last part of the book is going to concentrate on that last week. Things are always done in God's timing. Things are always according to his plan. So even though the Pharisees wanted to get him many times, now there's going to be the Lord going toward the cross. Why? His hour is now at hand. And the timing is according to God's plan. So while his hour is at hand, what does this mean? What is the significance of it? Well, the first thing is brought out to us very clearly as we look at verses 23 and 24, and I've mentioned it to you. Number one, what does it mean for Jesus? He must die. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies... It bears much fruit. He's speaking to people that understood farming. He's speaking to people that understood things of the earth. And he simply says the original grain that's put into the earth has to disintegrate. It has to change. And then it will produce fruit. And what he's pointing out is the cross of Jesus Christ, you've heard this from me before, here it is again, is an absolute must. He was going to Jerusalem, and the cross did not become a secondary plan. It was not a situation that if the Jews accepted Jesus Christ for the kingdom, that he wouldn't have gone to the cross. The cross is absolutely necessary. And that's what he's pointing out. The hour has come, and he must die. Why? It's very important. Pastor Chris mentioned sin this morning, and he knows that you hear it from this pulpit about sin. The wages of sin is death. That's why when man chose to disobey right in the Garden of Eden and he sinned against God, God reminded him and said, in the day that you sin, you will die. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Very familiar passage to you. But Romans 5 again. I want you to see this. People do not want to talk about sin. They want to talk about just, uh, you know, 
things that are malfunctioned, uh, things that have gone wrong, and blame everybody else. But we are sinners. We are all sinners. And that's how death came into the world. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin, sin did not come here through Satan. It came through man. One man's sin entered into the world. Scriptures are clear on that. And what else? Watch. And death through sin. That's how death got here. That's why you will have to die. And so death, notice this, is spread to all men. Why? <clears throat> because all have sinned. There isn't anybody in you. If you happen to be visiting for the first time today, I can tell you something about yourself. You're a sinner. Great. I really wanted to come to church to hear that. Whether you wanted to hear it or not, it's a reality. And you need to hear it. Because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ had to die to pay the penalty and price for sin. It's man's disobedience that brought it about. In fact, I would like you to just turn to that response of reading the end of it this morning. Go to Luke for one second here. Luke chapter 24. I want you to see something. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, in verse 25. Notice in verse 25, Jesus in the conversation says to them, remember they were looking for the one they thought was going to redeem Israel. Well, the Redeemer was there. That's verse 21. But look at verse 25. And what does he say to these people? Oh, foolish men. What do you mean foolish men? They were looking for physical redemption only. And he's pointing out to them anyone who does not see that the cross of Jesus Christ was necessary and that the death had to happen basically is a fool. That's what he's saying. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. And he explains it in verse 26. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? The answer is yes. Absolutely it was necessary. Isaiah chapter 53 that I read for communion. It was absolutely necessary for salvation that that happened. Sin is so devastating, it's not something to joke about. It's not something that we can just push aside and say, oh yeah, well, I guess I'm a sinner. I have evil thoughts. I've hated people. I've done things wrong. But everybody does that and so forth. It is true that everybody does that. But while man makes light of sin, sin is devastating. It has affected creation. That's why you have to weed your garden all the time. That's why the, uh, the shrubs and so forth, everything is affected by it. The storms, nature, it is just affected by the what? The consequences of sin. And Jesus Christ had to come and it was necessary for him to die. And that's what he's talking about when he uses the illustration of grain. It was absolutely necessary before there could be fruit, there had to be a death. So number one, he had to die. Why? Because we couldn't do it for ourselves, as we'll see in a few moments. Jesus Christ had to die for our sin. It says the Son and the Father really must be glorified. That's part of it in verse 23, the Son of Man to be glorified. I won't spend any more time on that term. We've seen it before. But he's talking about Jesus Christ, and he's also got to receive glory. And we saw that, that the Lord, the Father, talked about it in chapter 12, verse 27. Look at verses 13, uh, chapter 13, excuse me of John for a minute, verses 31 and 32. 
Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. What's he talking about? He's talking about his departure out of the world again. This is after the betrayal uh, where Judas Iscariot's all set to betray him. And what I'm trying to point out is because of God and who he is, the demands of the law were that there has to be a death to pay the penalty and price for sin. That's why Jesus Christ is referred to as our propitiation. Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2? It's a big term. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 2. In verse 1, you can look at it. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the only holy one. Verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation. He's the mercy seat, if you will, is usually referred to that way when somebody's teaching on it. He is the one that God looks upon for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ was there, and he had to be the sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. Why? He's the righteous one, in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way. I won't turn there. Verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He had to go to the cross. God's righteousness demands the penalty for sin, and the penalty is death. And Jesus Christ himself bore our sins. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 for one moment. Hebrews chapter 10. So what does it mean for Jesus Christ? He was sent out of God's love. We saw that in John chapter 3. But he was sent to die. And in Hebrews chapter 10, I'm not going to read all the verses because with communion Sunday time flies away here. But you look down and you'll see there was all kinds of sacrifices that were going on, okay, that could never take away sin. There was an offering continually, according to verse 1. But it never took away sin. Why? Verse 4. Reason is, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls. We said that the, the grape juice this morning represented the blood of Christ. It was impossible for the, those sacrifices to take away sins, verse 4. It was impossible. And then what you have is you have sacrifices that are going on daily. And this priest performing sacrifices day after day after day. Get on to verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice watch, which can never take away sins. Verse 12. But, here's the answer, a contrast. He having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for all time, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He had to die because of the justice of God. Colossians says that he took out that poster that was there and nailed it to the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ had to die. That's absolutely necessary. And that's what he's referring to in verse 24 back in our text. Not only that, he would bear fruit. Many would come, both Jew and Gentile. Hebrews chapter 2 says that very clearly. Many, many would come. And if you go back to John chapter 12, that's what it says. 
the wheat has to fall on the ground and it's got to die. Jesus Christ's death was because you and I can't save ourselves. Many people are trying to do that through religion. Many people are trying to do that through good works, hoping that when they die in this life physically, they'll have enough good works to get to heaven if there's a heaven. Well, first of all, there is a heaven and there is a hell, and you can't do anything to obtain righteousness before God. You're simply a sinner. It took a perfect sacrifice, and that's why Jesus Christ had to die. To pay the penalty and price for sin and to satisfy a righteous God. That's what it meant for him. His hour had come meant that he had to die. And also that he would be rising from the dead and would be glorified. And we're going to get to that in John's account in the gospel. And that he would bear much fruit. Many would come to salvation and to eternal life, which leads us into the second part that I want to get to today in John chapter 12. What is it? What does it mean to us? Verses 25 and 26. What does it mean for sinners? The first thing it means is life, eternal life, is possible. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. I'll explain that in a minute. He who hates his, hates his life in this world will keep it. Notice this. To life eternal. Is that become automatic? The answer is no. What does it mean for sinners? There's no other salvation but through Jesus Christ. And what it means, according to verse 25, is that the sinner must die. That's the bottom line. That's what it means. He uses the illustration in verse 24 to refer to Jesus Christ to explain what he did. And then he refers to us. He who loves his life, what's he talking about? Will lose his life. And he who hates his life. It's in the same context of verse 24 and 23. Just as Christ had to die, people have to, the sinner, if you will, have to die to self. They must not love the life in this world. If people just love life in this world and that's all you have, you have no hope for eternity. You have no hope beyond the grave. In fact, you'll find yourself in hell. That's the illustration that's being used here in verse 25. We also must die to self. It's put this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Speaking of believers there in Romans chapter 12. Believers that are set our treasures in heaven, not in this world. What does it mean to not love the life in this world? You want to get a picture of what this world really is? Go to 1 John chapter 2 again. 1 John chapter 2. In order to have eternal life, a person has to die. Now, we will all die physically, but what does that mean? That we hate our life in comparison to the life that Christ has offered for us. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, describes really what the world is all about. In these terms, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty close to giving you the understanding. I mean, pretty clear is what I wanted to say. If you love the world, you won't have the love of the Father in you. What's the love of the world? All that is in the world, what is it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is about self. The world is about my way. The world is about, if you will, religion. The world is about, if you will, good works. God's way is about a sacrifice through his Son who he sends. And the world is passing away, according to verse 17, 
in all of its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, watch this, lives forever. How do you get life there back in John chapter 12? The one that gets life is the one that loses his life in this world. He basically turns to Christ and is not relying on self. But there's a lot more to it there. Go back to John chapter 12. Let me put it to you this way first before I go on to the next point. If you're here today and you're trusting in your own good works, you're trusting in your own religion, you're trusting in your goodness to hopefully someday get to heaven, I'm going to tell you right now it won't work. You're a sinner. And the only sacrifice for sin that's acceptable in God's eyes is Jesus Christ who had to die for sin. And you need to believe on him. And that's what it means. You need to die to yourself and you need to look to him and hate your life in this world. And anyone that knows sin in their life will hate themselves in that sense. But all too often, believers separate the concept of coming to Christ and following him. But you'll notice in the same context in verse 5, and people get all caught up into this concept of lordship salvation and the terminology and all of that. Look at the verses, they're clear. What does it mean for us? You've got to die to yourself. And then he says this in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The glorification and the honoring of the Son was in complete obedience and following what the Father wanted to do. He was obedient to the Father's will all the time. And he had to die before that glorification and honoring of him came. We also, to have eternal life, according to verse 25, need to hate our life in this world and basically die to self and turn to Christ. That's what he's been dealing with. What does that mean? It means I serve him. It means that following him in the whole context, to believe on Jesus Christ means not only to believe in him and his death to self, but it's life in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know it well. Let me remind you as I have done over and over again. I'll read it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, many of you could quote it, but how many of us really see it as application in our life? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And listen, you are not your own. I personally believe that we are in a day and age in which professing Christianity is walking and living its life as if we are our own. And Christ doesn't own us. If you love the world, you don't love Christ. If you're living for the world, you don't even know Christ. I don't care what you say. Whole first John, the book of first John makes that clear. You have been bought with a price, it says in verse 20. Therefore glorify God in your body. We've been bought, we've been purchased. That's what salvation means. We are bought to serve Christ and to serve one another. That's what verse 26 is bringing out. We will serve him. That's what it means to trust him. It's I believe on him, I belong to him, and I serve him, and I follow him. In, in fact, I'd like you to turn to a passage that we frequently go to. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a minute. 
I want you to see something here. These verses ought to bring to conviction to anybody who says they know Christ and are living for this world and not living for Christ. It ought to cause them to examine themselves. We often quote 1 Peter chapter 2. I've done it many times, even in relationship to communion. But I want you to see something here. Go with me to verse 21. For you, believers, have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, professing Christians, an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, who while being reviled did not revile in return, while suffering he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And we always get focused on verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body, or on, where? On the cross. So that we might die to sin, and our life would be one of righteousness. It means, fellow Christian, that yes, he died on our behalf. Why? So that we can live any way we want or live for ourselves? And the answer is absolutely not. We will follow him. And we are to see ourselves as dead to sin. And our life is to be a life that's to be lived for righteousness. He set that as an example. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles, please. This concept of Christianity today that trusts in Christ and then goes their way, looks like the world, lives for the world, lives in the world, and doesn't have any thoughts whatsoever for living for Christ, is not true Christianity as found in the scriptures. In Mark chapter 8, you, you know this passage, but beginning in verse 34. It's found in the other accounts, by the way, and most often the one that's looked at is Luke. But we'll look at Mark chapter 8 for a second, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That's what we're talking about in our text. And, what? Take up his cross and follow me. Why? For whoever wishes to save his life, does it sound like our text? Will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And boy, is it bring, brought home in verse 36. For what does it profit if a man gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You got the point? And that's talking in the context of taking up his cross and following him. It's talking about the cost of what salvation is. It's costing about, talking about the cost of discipleship. You can gain everything in this world and lose your soul. What does it matter? You will face death. If you're here without Christ, let me challenge you on that. You might have everything you want. You might be searching for the riches of this world, and you might be searching for satisfaction. You can gain everything this world has to offer, and your soul will never be satisfied unless you come to Christ. And there is no salvation outside of him. And you'll forfeit your soul. But the cost of discipleship, listen, is taking up the cross every day in following Christ. 
Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm looking at my notes. I have at least 15 verses right in front of me that I was intending to to give to you, but there's a reason I'm not going to do that. Intending to give to you just to show you how you cannot profess faith in Christ and go live after the world and truly be a Christian. Can't do it. You have to take up your cross. Because if you belong to Christ, the bottom line is the Christian life is hard. And the reason I'm not going to turn to those verses is because I'm going to share something personal to you right here, professing believers, to get the concept of what he's dealing with also in John when he says that hating his life, and then he says in verse 26, if any man serves me, he must follow me. The Christian life is difficult. It's not easy. Not at all. Go with me to John chapter 15 for a second. People have a concept, and sometimes that's why they make a profession of faith. I challenged you last week on testifying for Christ and spreading the gospel as we looked at the context of John chapter 12. And listen, that's great, but don't go up to somebody and just say, do you want heaven? They're always going to answer you yes. They don't realize the cost. They don't realize the sin and the effect of it. You need to help them to understand that. In John chapter 15, look at verses 18. I'm just going to John on this one. 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. There's a test. Does the world love you? But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, no question about it. Christ chose us, chose us out of the world. Because of this, listen, if you're a chosen one, the world hates you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave. Who are we? Slaves. If I've trusted in Christ, I'm a slave. And I'm not greater than my master. Look at it. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Why? Because they do not know the one who sent me. Who's he talking about? The world doesn't know that. And the Christian life is absolutely filled with difficulties. It's not a bed of roses. Some that come to make professions on Christ, they think that Christ is just the answer to get me out of all my situations. Then they get discouraged when all trials and tribulations come their way. If you're here today as a professing Christian, you know that the Christian life is hard. The trials are sent our way so that we grow. The world will persecute us if we're living for Christ. If you live a godly life, what does the scripture say? You will face persecution. Now, how does that apply? How does that apply? Let me start by saying this. You can't have Jesus and the world, folks. If you think you can have Jesus and the world, you didn't see any of the verses that I pointed to, and I only pointed to a couple of them. Because if you love the world, you're an enemy of God. But if I trusted in Christ, what does it mean? It means trials. It means difficulties. Now, why bring that up? 
We have to be honest as Christians. Life is filled with trials. I'm going to share one with you that I wanted to bring to your attention. Some of you know about it, but I know some of you don't. And then I want to bring it home to you. Because the concept is, I have to die to self in coming to Christ. But that means I also need to follow Christ. And that means there's going to be problems. How would you like to have this situation? Some of you pray for the work in South Africa with the Bronx. And some of you know of this situation. You know the Bronx are here. But a letter came through. Let me just give you this much of it. August 18th. Hold on to that. August 18th, the letter came, and here's what it said. Would you pray for Tom and Diana Johnson? Why? Their son went home to be with the Lord in a car crash. Another email came to us. September 8th. Please continue to remember the Johnson family in prayer. We just received word Tom's father passed away. We got another email. September 29th. This is a missionary field that we're praying for. We're saddened to bring you further prayer requests for the Johnson family. Their son-in-law was just in a car accident and died. In the course of 20 days, I believe it is, or 30 days, three family members killed, died. The Christian life is tough. It's not a bed of roses. Can you bear those trials? You and I are called and we grow through trials. You see, we think all the time that my Christian life has got to be everything's going smoothly and everything's perfect. There are no Christian lives that are going that way, folks, even in this room. Why am I bringing that to us? Well, we ought to be praying for the Johnson family. Yes, but every single one of us are facing difficulties. And too often we're phony Christians, if you will. What do you mean? We think that if I share a testimony that there's a struggle in my life, people are going to think that I'm not the Christian I should be. Christians aren't open with one another. Not only do we not testify that we learned about last week, we're afraid to share. I just was talking with a Christian recently. And the Christian was heartbroken. Their son wants nothing to do with the things of Christ. And they're crushed. Praise the Lord, the Christian had enough courage to share that so I could pray for them. Most of the time we won't say it because we want to think, what are people going to think about me? I lost my job. I don't know how to handle this situation. I can't pay the mortgage. My finances are difficult. People are going to think I'm not a Christian. I blew it at work. Following Christ is a life that's filled with trials, and we have to be honest with one another, and we need to pray for one another. We need to be involved in one another's lives and not put on a false image like everything's going fine all the time because we know it's not. And so does everybody else. We all have these struggles. The struggles are coming from our own flesh. And at times we fail because we yield to sin in our own life. We don't want to tell anybody. 
Now, is it true that within Christianity there are those that are gossips? Yes. Don't worry about them. God will take care of them. Have the courage to go to other Christians and say, I need prayer. I'm struggling. The world, the attacks of the world are everywhere. Everywhere. And as Christians, we're facing it all the time. Christ faced that when he was on the earth. His flesh, he never yielded. The world never yielded. The devil, he never yielded. But you and I are weak. How do you think Peter ended up denying him? Because he failed. Why do you think the Christians, his disciples, deserted him? Because they failed. Why do you think Paul had to address Peter? Because he failed. The Greeks were coming along and he didn't want to give this false image about anything. And that's in Galatians. What in the world has this got to do with the text, Pastor Nan? We have to die to self. And when we come to Christ, we need to follow him. And as Christians, I firmly believe that most Christians are hurting and they don't want anybody to know. Why? We need to pray. We need to support one another. That's what the unity of the body is all about. The world isn't going to love you. But fellow believers will. And they'll pray with you. And we're no less a Christian. In fact, we're showing that God's using trials in our life to help us to grow. And we're supposed to weep with those who weep. And we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. But if you know Christians who nothing is going wrong in their life and they're professing Christians, and they're never involved in trials, I would challenge you that they're probably not Christians at all. They're just living with a profession of faith because the Christian life is hard. And he's trying to get to his disciples. The world was missing it with Christ. They wanted everything on the outside, deliverance from Rome, everything that was fine, everything that was physical, and didn't want a suffering Savior. If you don't have a suffering Savior, then you don't have a Savior at all. But he wanted them to understand that not only did he have to die, but the one who wants to follow him has to die to this life, has to die to themselves and take up their cross and follow Christ. And as a fellow believer, we will fail. We will fall. We will yield. Don't browbeat yourself. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And I'll close with this. In John chapter 12, I want you to see this. He's going to be glorified, and he really ends it with that. Because he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Not he might. He must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. That's not just heaven. That's even in living in the world. But watch this. If anyone serves me, and you are a servant, you've been bought with a price if you belong to him, the Father, what? Will honor him. And that's what's involved in glorification. The Son is going to be glorified. The Son is going to be honored. But also those who follow Christ and serve Him, I would rather have the honor of God the Father and God the Son than the honor of this world. And you have to ask yourself that same question. And so do I.
His disciples weren't getting it. Christ's hour was at hand, and he's calling people to himself. Those of us that have professed faith in Christ really need to examine that. Am I serving the Lord, following him the way I should? And I say to you this morning that if you are, you're suffering just like, maybe not the same exact thing that the Johnson family suffered, but I praise the Lord they shared that because we need to pray for them and uphold them before the throne of grace. You can imagine the heartache that they're feeling. You can imagine here they are on a field trying to follow Christ and all those that are in South Africa, they look and say, is that what the Christian life is like? They come to Christ and that happens and that happens and that happens. And I can relate to that. You know that as a congregation. It was a devastating effect to me when I, in the course of one hour, had two phone calls in which two of my sisters had died within an hour of one another, totally in different areas. Those things hurt. Those things are painful. And when we have struggles as a family, and you have struggles as a family, they're painful. But we serve a great Savior. And we need to be open and honest that following Christ is difficult. Try that one the next time you witness. Go to somebody and say, I want you to know you're a sinner. You've already got them in trouble. You're going to hell. Now they really like you. And then you say, and the only way is through Christ. And it's all true. And then you turn around and say, hey, by the way, if you come to Christ, your trials are just about to begin. You know, so far do we get away from the word of God, even though we know it. Now, we do need to talk about the love of Christ. We, that's not the way to approach somebody. Don't go out of here and hit them with that. But you, you're getting the point. We need to tell them that God's love is found and that a sacrifice had to take place. And there is hope for them in heaven. There is hope for eternal life, and it's only found in Christ. But we also need to paint the right picture. And we need to see as believers that following Christ and being a servant of Christ is difficult, but what a great Savior we have. I have to stop. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we see the Lord Jesus Christ coming in, offering himself to Israel. They were looking for the Redeemer and didn't even see him. Your disciples who have been walking with you and seeing all that you've done and listening, you're still teaching them and showing them that you had to die. Not pleasant. They didn't even get it until after the resurrection. Father, how so with us. We know your word says that anyone who follows you will suffer persecution. We know that James tells us through trials and tribulations we should be rejoicing because we'll grow. And yet, Father, those who have come to Christ so often, we think we're less a Christian because of the difficulties we face. And really, you're molding us. You're conforming us to bear much fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to be rejoicing. Help us, Father, to share with one another. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to be thankful that we have the body of Christ that we can come to, that we can rejoice in, that we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Help us, Father, to be down on our knees for one another, not looking down on other believers when they're suffering or going through a trial. I pray, Father, and ask that by your grace you'd open the hearts of anyone that hasn't come to know Christ that's in this audience. 
they would see there's nothing they can do to obtain salvation. But Father, they need to count the cost. Coming to Christ. Coming to Jesus Christ means that they need to die to self. They need to see that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one can come to you but by him. And I pray that you'd open up their understanding to that. Thank you for this time together. We pray you'd bless our day, guide us, and help us to live it for Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.